Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Page Turners Podcast with your boy, Big L, also known as Elgin Bailey. Uh, this is episode number three of season two with the Pacers podcast man what the Pacers podcast is we grab books man and walk through books page by page and reading them man from a black perspective looking to gain give understanding on particular subjects and topics Season one of the Page Turners podcast, we walk through the late great Dr. James H. Cone's Black Theology and Black Power. Uh, man, what a powerful, powerful, dope, dope book. So, what I needed to do for season two was really to find something, man, that was going to be just as impactful, just as on point as the first book so what I did was I decided to do Evicted 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 is by Matthew Desmond Evicted Poverty and Profit in the American City winner of the 2016 National Book Critics Circle Award winner of the 2017 Payne John Kenneth Gilbreth Award Winner of the 2017 Andrew Carnegie Medal. Winner of the 2017 Penn New England Award. Winner of the 2016 Barnes & Noble Discover Great New Writers Award. Finalist for the 2016 Los Angeles Times Book Prize. Finalist for the 2016 Kirkus Prize. So what we see automatically, man, is that this is an award-winning book a book that is very very popular um, and thought-provoking on a number of levels let me just read the back for you guys man so you get a better understanding of what the book is about in Evicted, Princeton sociologist and MacArthur genius Matthew Desmond follows eight families in Milwaukee as they each struggle to keep a roof over their heads, held as wrenching and revelatory by the nation. Vivid and unsettling New York Review of Books. Evicted transforms our understanding of poverty and economic exploitation while providing fresh ideas for solving one of the 21st century's America's most devastating problems. Its unforgettable scenes of hope, loss, reminds us of the centrality of home without which nothing else is possible. Now, man. This is going to be chapter two that we're reading, man. And from what we've read so far has been, in many ways, man, in many areas, very difficult to uh, to grasp, to deal with, to understand. Uh, and it's been a struggle. So let me read a little bit, man. And family, in between me reading, I'm going to give different thoughts and uh, blurbs about what 
is being said and a little bit of commentary because that's what we do with the page turns here man i kind of give you what the book is saying and then we kind of break it down and ask each other questions to gain an understanding of what is taking place with this particular text in each episode of the page turners is only going to be about 30 minutes long man i'm only going to hit you with 30 minutes because i know folks is busy got a lot going on so i'm not gonna you know keep you guys long but what i will ask you particularly for my youtube listeners man my youtube viewers please like subscribe share please like subscribe share uh very important man for us to get this information out so let me dig in and the text reads chapter two making rent sometime after sharina paid him a visit with her eviction notice lamar was back in his apartment on 18th and right playing spades with his two sons and their friends as always they sat around a small kitchen table slapping and playing cards hard on the wood or sending them spinning with a calm flick of the wrist the neighborhood boys knew they could show up at lamar's place day or night for a bite to eat a drag off a blunt if they were lucky and a romping time of a game of spades you ain't got no spades negro look what are you going to set their ass? Lamar was partnered with Buck. In 18, at 18, Buck was the oldest of the crew and went by Big Bro. They sat across from each other playing Luke, Lamar's 16-year-old son, and Demarcus, one of Luke's closest friends. Eddie, Lamar's youngest son at 15, worked the stereo while four of the neighborhood boys stood around waiting their turn with spades. Lamar sat in his wheelchair, his prosthetic legs, each one foot to top shin, stood beside his bed, casting a human-like shadow on the rough wood floor. Police crazy buck offered, inspecting his hand. He was finishing high school and working part-time in his cafeteria, where he had to wear a hairnet to cover his thick cornrows. Buck slept at his parents' house, but lived at Lamar's. If someone asked him why, he would study his he would study his 12-foot boots, his tw- his size 12 boots, and just say, "Cause." The boys usually walked to the store or football practice together, strutting nine or ten deep down White Wright Street. Being stopped by the Milwaukee PD had become routine. That was why when someone made a run to the weed spot, he usually went alone. Next time I'm going to be like, what you stopping me for, Buck went on. Because you have a right to ask them. They got to see, smell, hear or something. They ain't got to see nothing, Lamar replied. Yes, they do, Pops. They teaching me this at school. They teaching you wrong, then. Demarcus laughed and put a cigarette lighter to a blunt he had just licked shut. He drew in and passed it. The game got underway quick at first and slower as players' hands thinned. When the cops come up, Buck persisted, even they pull you over, you ain't even got to let your windows down. You just got to roll it down a little bit. It ain't that sweet, Lamar grinned. Nah, Pops. Don't be trying to change things, man, cut in Demarcus, who had just been arrested because of his slick mouth, according to Lamar. A hard head makes a soft ass. 
The laughter lifted higher when Lamar added, Can't call me, collect. He took a drag off the blunt. Baby boy, his voice was tender. I'm 51. If it happened, I've been through it. The police ain't protecting us, Buck said. I feel you on that. But all polices are not the same. If I was in the neighborhood and it was rough, I want the police to clean that shit up too. Lamar tossed out a king of diamonds and looked left to Demarcus. Go ahead, get it out your hand. The ace had already been played, and he figured Demarcus had the queen. Demarcus looked back at Pops, aka Lamar, poker face through thick glasses. Pops, your neighborhood protects you. If somebody comes through shooting everybody on the block, everybody who got hauling all shooting. Man, I'm a Vietnam veteran. I know I can shoot. Lamar had joined the Navy in 74 after being a senior commercial. He was 17. The Navy was a blur of burning oceans, exotic locations, shore leave parties, pills, and blown checks. Lamar couldn't see why all the floppy-haired college students down in Madison had gone crazy over Vietnam, getting their noggins thumped by police batons and blowing up the university building. Lamar was having a blast. He was dishonorably discharged in 1977. But a bullet ain't got no eyes, Lamar continued. Man, look here. We went to court with DeMarcus. The game stopped while Lamar Lamar told the story. Before DeMarcus' case was called, Lamar said they had watched a teenager sentenced to 14 years for accompanying his older brother when he beat a crackhead to death. He's in the courtroom bawling his eyes out. They on some bull because he a little black boy, Buck said. Well then, that should make you think being black. As Buck laughs, DeMarcus slapped his card down the eight of spades. Ah, that's what my mama taught me, he yelled. Next to all the other suits, the spade was the most powerful. DeMarcus slid the book to his pile. Damn, Lamar said. Then he looked back at Buck. It ain't worth it being stupid stuff. Prison ain't no joke. You gotta fight every day in prison for your life. I know, but when I get mad to the extent that I want to do something, ain't nothing stopping me. You better grow up, kid. As Buck took a long hit off the blunt, Lamar added, and you need to slow down, smoker. He drew the last word out using a high-pitched, tiny voice. Buck laughed so hard he lost his head. But the point got through. I'm straight, he demurred. The next time the blunt was ass. When his sons were at school, Lamar listened to the oldies while he cleaned and drank instant coffee with sugar. He pushed forward in his wheelchair, set the brake, and swept the dirt into a long-handled dustpan. Instead of stacking the boys into a single bedroom, Lamar had given Luke one bedroom and Eddie the other, their twin beds resting on metal frames. Lamar's bed sat in the corner of the living room. On the other side was Moss Green Couch. Teen photographs from past football seasons, white silk flowers, and a small fish tank with cuppies. The apartment was spare and tidy, full of light. Its pantry bordered on obsessive compulsive. The spam was stacked neatly in its place. The cereal box lined up at attention. The cans of soup and beans organized by kind and all forward facing. Lamar had re- had repurposed a close day boys 
wine rack to hold a small stereo dishes and the folders cans where he kept his tobacco and midnight special rolling papers. The place had come a long way. When Lamar first came to look at the apartment, it was a mess, with maggots sprouting from unwashed dishes in the kitchen, but Lamar needed a home. He and his sons had been sharing a room in the basement of his mother's house. She gave all of them a 9 p.m. curfew and saw the place had promise. Sharina had waived Lamar's security deposit. She thought he would be approved for SSI, a monthly stipend for low-income people who are either elderly or have mental or physical disabilities, but that hadn't worked out yet. After school had let out for the day, the boys would start showing up at Lamar's, sometimes with and sometimes without Luke and Eddie. Most evenings by nightfall, everyone would have chipped in for a blunt or two, and the cards would come out. Lamar's approach with his boys and the boys he treated like sons was open and avuncular. You can't hide nothing from God, he told them, so don't hide it from your daddy. Do what you do at home. I'd rather for you to do it at home around me than out there on them street corners. As Lamar smoked and laughed with the boys, he handed down advice about work, sex, drugs, and cops and life. When the boys complained about girls, Lamar would try to even the scales. You've been talking about girls, but it's the men that be messing up on them. Lamar reviewed the boys' report cards and nagged them about finishing their homework. They think I'm partying with them. I'm watching them. Lamar could watch them because he was not always away. Pulling a long shift. Plenty of people on his block work. The boys hardly saw those people except when they dashed their cars uniform press. Lamar had worked several jobs after leaving the service. He worked at a janitor at multiple places. He drove a forklift and poured chemicals for Athena Laboratories. After he lost his legs, he applied for SSI, but was twice denied because Lamar recalled being told he could still work in his condition. Lamar wouldn't argue with that, but good jobs were scarce. Milwaukee used to be flush with good jobs, but throughout the second half of the 20th century, bosses in search of cheap labor moved plants overseas or to a Sunbelt communities, where unions were weaker and didn't exist. <laughs> Between 1979 and 1983, Milwaukee's manufacturing sector lost more jobs than during the Great Depression, about 56,000 of them. The city, where virtually everyone had a job in the post-war years, saw its unemployment rate climb into the double digits. Those who found new work in the emergency service sector took a pay cut. As one historian observed, machinists in the old Alice Chandler's planets earned at least $11.60 an hour. Clerks in the shopping center that replaced much of that plant in, the ni- in 1987 earned $5.23. And already we're beginning to see 
out in Milwaukee, things began to get as bad, how the poverty began to take over. It wasn't the fact that these people didn't desire jobs. It wasn't the fact that they were lazy. It wasn't the fact that they were, you know, dependent on the government to come through to, to, to bail them out. All those excuses that people tend to, excuses and rationales that people tend to use and throw out in regards to why people are in the position that they are poverty-wise, it was because in this particular city where they had these factories, these factories decided to shut down. These factories closed up and took their business elsewhere, away from where the unions were. And that affected these folks tremendously, man. Back to the text. These economic transformations, which were happening in cities across America, devastated Milwaukee's black workers, half of whom held manufacturing jobs. When plants closed, they tended to close in the inner city where Milwaukee, where black Milwaukeeans lived. The black poverty rate rose to 28% in 1980. By 1990, it had climbed to 42%. There used to be an American Motors plant on Richards and Capital on the city's predominantly black north side. It has been replaced by a Walmart. Today in Milwaukee, former leather tanneries line the banks of the Menumimi River Valley like mausoleums of the city's golden industrial age. The slits and perhaps breweries have been shattered and one in two working age African-American men doesn't have a job. Now, slits and perhaps breweries, they're two very, at one point in time, very popular beers. If you remember the beginning of, well, Laverne and Shirley was staged. The old TV show was filmed in Milwaukee. It was grounded in Milwaukee and where they worked. They actually worked for these factories. Because remember the beer coming around, the factories coming around, the machinery and the opening stages of the show? Just a little background. And the text reads... In the 1980s, Milwaukee was the epicenter of de-industrialization. In the 1990s, it would become the epicenter of anti-welfare crusade. Now pay attention to this, man. As President Clinton was fine-tuning his plan to end welfare as we know it, a conservative reformer by the name of Jason Turner was transforming Milwaukee into a policy experiment that captivated lawmakers around the country. Turner's plan was dubbed Wisconsin Workers W-2, and Works was right. If you wanted a welfare check, you would have to work, either in the private sector or in a community job created by the state. To push things along, child care and health care subsidies would be expanded. W-2 meant that people were paid only for the hours they logged on a job. Even if that job was to sort little toys into different colors and have the supervisor reshuffle them so they could be sorted again the next day. Mm -hmm. 
It meant that non-compliers could have their food stamps slashed. It meant that 22,000 Milwaukee families would be cut from the welfare rolls. Five months after Milwaukee established the first real work program in history of welfare, Clinton signed the welfare reform into federal law. But y'all was cheering and looking for Hillary to oppose and be <laughs> your president instead of Trump. Yeah, about that. And the text reads, when W-2 finally replaced aid to families and dependent children in 1997, it provided two types of family stipends. Here's where it gets wild, family. $673 for beneficiaries who worked and $628 for those who didn't or couldn't, usually because of a disability. Because Lamar didn't work, he received a lesser amount known as W-2-T. After paying $550 in rent, Lamar had $78 for the rest of the month. That amounted to $2.19 a day. $2.19 a day. After paying $550 in rent, Lamar had $78 for the rest of the month. That amounted to $2.19 a day. It's rough, man. It's rough. When Lamar's welfare benefits started, right after he moved into Shireen's apartment, he had mistakenly received two checks. In his Rights and Responsibilities Guide, the Wisconsin Department of Children and Families informed clients who had been overpaid, you may have to repay benefits you received by mistake, regardless of whether it was their fault or the agency's fault. Now, <laughs> okay. Tell that to a single father trying to raise two teenage boys on a welfare check. Lamar cashed both checks and bought Lamar bought Luke and Eddie's shoes, clothes, and school supplies, along with curtains and furniture for their new apartment. Of course I spent it. Got my name on it. He had said when a caseworker contacted him after discovering the error. The caseworker deducted the overpayment from Lamar's next check, causing him to find a fall a month behind on rent. Lamar th thought the basement job he had done for Sharina and Quentin was worth $250. The basement was covered with mildewed yeah, clothes, trash, and dog shit. Reminding him of a recurring dream he had where he would crawl into a strange shadow basement to buy dope. He refused to ask any of the boys for help, thinking the work was beneath them. He cleaned the basement alone, working until his stubs grew too sore. It took him a week. Sharina credited him 
$50 for it. He still owed her $260. How do you, how do you get out of this family? How do you accomplish? I, I, I don't know how you grow, man. I don't know how you grow. I don't, how do you succeed, family? How do you succeed? I don't understand, man. following month, Sharina was driving through heavy rain. Traffic sounded like a thousand mop buckets being tossed out the back door. She was headed to a meeting of the Milwaukee Real Estate Investors Networking Group, Rank, at the Best Western Hotel by the airport on the far south side of the city. Fifty people showed up, including investors, mold assessors, lawyers, and other players in the real estate. But the majority of the people in the room were landlords, men mostly, young men in ties, many of the sons of landlords, but taking notes anyway, foot-tapping middle-aged men in leather jackets and boots, older men in caps and in flannel shirts with knuckles like tree trunks. Sharia stood out as a woman, especially as a black woman. Besides her friend, Laura, who had moved from Jamaica 30 years ago, Sharina was the only black person in the room. Almost everyone was white, with names like Eric, Mark, or Kathy. A couple of generations ago, a gathering like this would have been virtually unheard of. Many landlords were part-timers, machinists, or preachers, or police officers who came to own property almost by accident through inheritance and saw real estate as a side gig. But the last 40 years have witnessed the professionalization of property management. Since 1970, the number of people primarily employed as property managers had been more than quadrupled. As more landlords begin buying more property and thinking of themselves primarily as landlords instead of people who happen to own a unit downstairs, professional associations proliferated and with them support services, accreditation, training materials, financial instruments. According to the Library of Congress, only three books offering apartment management advice were published between 1951 and 1975. <laughs> Peep this jump though, family. Between 1976 and 2014, the number rose to 215. Even most of the landlords in given cities did not consider themselves professional housings had become a business. The evening speaker was Ken Shields from Self Storage Brokers of America. After selling his insurance company, Shields had begun living looking for a way to get into real estate. He started out with rooming houses, which meant he started out renting mainly to poor single men. Very nice cash flow but I no longer have them, the room chuckled. I made some good money, I mean. I love to get money, but I'm still just as happy not running around dealing with some of these dregs of society who live in rooming houses. 
Serena, who owned a couple of rooming houses, laughed along with the room. The Shields founded self-storage. It got the residual incomes of apartment buildings, but he lowered his voice, squinted. You don't have the people. You just got their stuff. This is the sweetest spot in the whole American economy. A receptacle for the economic cascades of money. The landlords loved Ken Shield, even if he did live in Illinois. When he finished his speech, the room broke into applause. The ring president, a mustached man with a full pouch for a stomach, stood up clapping. When there wasn't a speaker, he often organized round robins. One such evening, a woman from Lead and Espresso's Information Center, Inc., has started off by announcing, There is money to be made on Lead. To a room of landlords, more often lost money trying to abate it. One lord, landlord asked whether he would have to report the presence of asbestos to the city or the tenants if he tested for it. No, you don't, the woman said. Oof. You don't have to tell the city or the tenants if you find asbestos in the crib. So the landlord don't have to let you know or anybody else know that there's asbestos in the crib. Family, they don't have to let you know. conversation moved on as someone had asked about garnishing wages. A lawyer informed the room that a landlord was allowed to garnish a tenant's bank account and up to 20% of his or her income, but the last 1000 was exempt and the welfare recipients were off limits. How about intercepting their tax refund, Sharina asked. The lawyer looked a little stunned. No, only the government can do that. Sharina already knew that. She had looked into it before. Her question wasn't a question. It was a message to Eric, Mark, and Kathy, and everyone else in the room, that she would do almost anything to get the rent. Many white landlords knew money could be made in inner cities where property was cheap. But the thought of collecting payments on the north side, let alone passing out eviction notice, made them nervous. Sharina wanted to let them know that she could help. For the right price, she would manage their property or consult about where to buy in the ghetto. She would be their broker to the black Milwaukee. After that meeting, white landlords had surrounded Sharina, who had worn a denim jacket with a million-dollar baby embezzled in rhinestones on her back. She poked fun as she collected a business card. Don't be afraid of the north side. As people started to leave, Sharina and Laura found a quiet spot in the hallway. I got drama, Sharina began. Drama for your mama. Me and Lamar Richards are going at it again. The man with no legs. He's sure to me on my rent this month. How much, Laura's voice, with soft traces of an island accent, belonged to a librarian. She was older than Sharina, and at that night was elegantly dressed in dark slacks, gold earrings, and a layered red blouse. She folded her fur-lined coat on her lap. 
$30 for me to show up, but that's not it. It's the principal. He already owes me $260 for the bad job on the painting. When Lamar and the boys had finished painting, he called Shireen and she came up. She noticed that the boys had not filled in the holes, had dripped white paint on the brown trim, had ignored the pantry. Lamar said Quentin had not dropped off hole filler or brown paint. You're supposed to go and ask for it then, Sharina snapped. She refused to credit Lamar a cent towards his debt. And then, Sharina continued, he did this bathroom floor over without my knowledge and deducted $30 out of the rent when painting. Lamar had found a small box of tile in Patrice's old place and had used it to retile his bathroom floor, securing each piece with leftover paint. <laughs> Lamar, come on, bruh. I told him, do not, do not ever deduct any more rent from me ever again. Plus, how can you deduct when you owe me? Laura recrossed her legs. He's a player, that's all he is. Time for him to go. They just try to take, 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 take. The thing is, Sharina circled back to Lamar's paint job. I would have never paid anyone 260 to do that. I can get painting done in five rooms, 30 bucks a room, $150. No, no, no. Our people do it for $20 a room, 25 at the most. Exactly. As far as I'm concerned, he still owes the 260 Excuse me, now it's 290 The old friends laughed. It was just what Sharina needed. That concludes this week's reading, man, of the Page Turners book, Evicted. <laughs> Lord have mercy. It's such a, a fascinating, man, fascinating, fascinating story. Uh, to watch how... Watch how these particular people, man, are going to be taken advantage of and how they're making money and how they're hustling off of the fact that other people are poor, man, and that people are not able to make money, how they're not able to be successful, how they're not able to get what they need done. How? And there's so many so many questions. Lamar is disabled. Lamar ain't got no legs, man. Lamar can't work a job. Then on top of that, Lamar got two teenage boys. On top of that, Lamar has decided that he wants to turn his his house man into a miniature uh, <laughs> boarding home school for boys. <laughs> he ain't got no money. He's struggling, but that's the way the dog room. This whole thing is set up, man. And you see both sides. You see Sharia and Laura. They trying to make a buck. They trying to get money. 
And then you see the Lamars of the world trying to make money to have a place to rent. Ladies and gentlemen, please continue to listen, share, subscribe what is taking place here at the Page Turners, man. I want to thank you guys for being a part of this week's episode of the Page Turners, man. I thank you so much. I truly appreciate you guys. Until next time, we out. We'll